Chapter Two of Tales of the Royal Irish Constabulary by Unknown. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Two On the Run. Paddy Flanagan stood in the doorway of his small shop in the main street of the mean and dirty little village of Ballyfrack, watching the rain coming down in torrents, while he listened with one ear to his wife arguing with a countrywoman in the shop behind him over the price of eggs, and with his other ear for the high-pitched sound of a powerful car. Presently the woman in the shop, having sold her eggs and bought provisions, wrapped her shawl over her head and started to make her way home. As Patty moved aside to let the woman out, his ear caught the dreaded sound he was expecting, growing louder every second and culminating in a shower-bath of mud as two Crosley tenders, full of auxiliary cadets, dashed past the shop and disappeared as suddenly as they had come. Hardly had the noise of the engines died away than Paddy's quick ear caught the sound of cars approaching again, and two Ford cars, the first carrying a huge coffin and the second apparently mourners, drew up at a small hotel almost opposite Paddy's shop. Some two years previously Flanagan had become a rabid Sinn Feiner. He had previously been as rabid a nationalist, with a keen eye to business. For a long time it looked as though Sinn Féin was the only horse in the race, and the dream of an Irish Republic seemed more than likely to become a reality. Lately, however, the British government had been sitting up and taking a quite unnecessary interest in Ireland. First, the British government had formed the Auxiliary Division, those cursed pups of Cromwell, as Paddy described them to his friends, while Mrs. Paddy used to say that the government had recruited them from all the prisons and asylums in England. Then, to crown all, the government had had the audacity to put several counties within easy reach of Ballyfrack under martial law. So far, Paddy had carried on the war for freedom with words only, but a week before this story starts he had found to his great alarm that he would be called upon for deeds on a dark sunday night just as the flanagans were preparing to go to bed there came two short sharp knocks at the shop door followed by a long one now paddy had always had a great dread of night work and swore that come what might he would not open his door to any man be he policeman or shanfainer for a minute there was a tense silence in the stuffy dark shop save for the heavy breathing of mrs flanagan broken suddenly by a blow which threatened to break in the street door and a loud voice called out to flanagan to open in the name of the irish republican army god save us said mrs flanagan and dived under the bed and Paddy would have liked to follow his wife, but he had heard of the unpleasant results which always followed a refusal to open to the IRA. Before another blow could be struck on the door, he had it open, and at once three dark figures slipped into the shop, the last one closing the door. And in the darkness of the shop, Paddy Flanagan listened to his fate. It seemed that in the adjoining county, where martial law had recently been proclaimed, the military were making life quite unbearable for the volunteers, and the auxiliaries had openly declared that they would shoot John O'Hara, the chief assassin of policemen in that county, at sight. 
Before Flanagan could realize the horror of the situation, two of the men had disappeared into the night, and he found himself face to face with the notorious John O'Hara, with instructions to pass him on without fail to the port of Ballybor, some eighty miles, where O'Hara would be smuggled on board a vessel bound for England. It was some considerable time before Flanagan could induce his wife to come out from under the bed and produce a meal for O'Hara. Before they went to sleep, his wife reminded Flanagan, quite unnecessarily, of the fate which the auxiliaries and black and tans had assigned to anyone who gave shelter or help to John O'Hara. For days past, Paddy had been racking his brains, spurred on by the laments of his wife, how to get rid of O'Hara, and every day the danger seemed to grow greater, until at last Paddy could stand it no longer. The outstanding feature in a western peasant's character is always curiosity, and the longer Paddy stood in the doorway of his shop, gazing at the coffin on the car, the greater his curiosity became. He had never seen so big a coffin. If there was a man inside, he must be the devil of a fellow and all, but perhaps it might be a woman, until at last the coffin drew him as a magnet draws a needle. A close inspection of the two cars told him nothing, so there only remained to go inside in the hope of meeting the occupants. Inside the hotel he found the mourners seated round the fire in a back room, drinking porter and discussing the disappearance of John O'Hara, and after ordering a drink he drew a chair up to the fire and joined in the general conversation. Paddy soon found out that the coffin contained the body of a policeman who had been murdered in a recent ambush in the adjoining county, and his relatives were bringing his body home, a village close to Ballybor. Probably the name of the town gave Paddy the idea, but in a flash he saw his way clear to get rid of O'Hara, and that at once, if a dead policeman could be taken in the coffin to Ballybor, why not the live John O'Hara? For the next two hours Paddy plied the relations of the dead policeman with porter, whiskey, and poteen, and by that time had learned all he wanted to know. They had permits to the police for the two cars to travel to Ballybor. They were all strong and noisy patriots, in spite of the murdered policeman outside, and were as ready as the next man to turn an honest penny. Now Flanagan, being no fool, knew that no sane man, drunk or sober, would take upon himself the responsibility of John O'Hara unless he was forced to, and bearing this in mind during the negotiations which followed, he used the threat of the magic letters I.R.A. freely, pretending that he himself was a member of the dreaded inner circle. In the end, after much drink and a lot of haggling, it was settled that the car should be taken into the hotel yard for the night. Then, during the night, the policeman's body was to be removed to a hayloft and buried secretly the following night, under arrangements to be made by Flanagan, in a bog outside the village, where several unfortunate volunteers, who had fallen in an attack on the local police barracks, were buried. Meanwhile, the hotel boots, who was a carpenter by trade, would make ventilation holes in the coffin, and the funeral party would set off for Ballybor before daybreak. The last part of the negotiations resembled the selling of a horse at a fair, and the price he had to pay sobered Flanagan and nearly turned his hair white. Not one yard would they go with O'Hara until they got a hundred pounds. But by now Flanagan was desperate, and if they had demanded two hundred pounds he would have paid it. 
At last all the details were settled, and Flanagan went home to warn O'Hara of his coming journey in the coffin. The thought that in a few hours he would be free of the man for good and all made life worth living again. But his joy was short-lived. On entering the kitchen, he found four long-haired young men making a hearty meal, more victims of British tyranny, all on the run for the murder of policemen, and his heart sank at the thought that there would probably be more to follow. In fact, his house was being used as a clearing-house for all the wanted men of the adjoining county. Flanagan woke up O'Hara, told him of the arrangements that had been made to get him to Ballybor, and added that four more men had just turned up, and that it failed him to know how to pass them on. O'Hara thought for a moment and replied, "'Sure, it's easy, no, now. Why wouldn't they go for the mourners?' As soon as O'Hara was ready and the young men could be persuaded to stop eating, the party set out for the hotel in order to get away before the mourners woke up. O'Hara took command, found out that one of his companions could drive a Ford, but that none of them had any idea how to get to Ballybor, and told Flanagan that the driver of the coffin car would have to go with them as a guide. On arrival at the hotel, Flanagan roused the boots, O'Hara gave his instructions about the driver, and they then proceeded to the bedrooms of the poteen-logged mourners, who offered no protest, while O'Hara removed their topcoats and hats for his companions. Flanagan seized the opportunity of transferring his hundred pounds from the sleeping chief mourner's trousers pocket to his own again. By the light of a guttering candle, O'Hara was packed into the coffin, and in the darkness of a raw early morning the two cars pulled out of the hotel yard and disappeared down the road which leads to Ballybor. Flanagan, with a sigh of relief, wiped his forehead and prayed that he might never see O'Hara in this world again, and went home feeling ten years younger, but determined not to be at home when the mourners got busy and came for an explanation. On the morning O'Hara left Ballyfrack in the coffin, Blake had motored to the town of Dunallen to see his county inspector. On his way back, about fourteen miles from Ballybor, the road leads over a narrow bridge and up a steep hill with a sharp blind turn at the top. As Blake swung his car all out round this corner, he saw about fifty yards in front two Ford cars standing in the road, the leading car with a huge coffin tied across the body of the car, and round the other car a group of young men. Pulling up his car, he sounded his horn as he had not room to pass, but with no effect. Blake, who was in mufti, had with him an orderly in plain clothes, and being in a hurry told him to go and tell the driver to go on. As the orderly returned, both cars started up and went on. Once started, they went as fast as Blake could wish, and for some miles the three cars kept close together until they reached a village about ten miles from Ballybor. Here the main road to Ballybor appears to carry straight on through the village, but this only leads into a cul-de-sac, what looks like a side road on the left side of the main street being the Ballybor turning. The two strange cars passed the turning, while Blake, once round the corner, made for home at full speed. He thought no more of the cars, but after they had gone about a mile, the orderly asked him if he had ever seen such a big coffin before. Blake replied that he had not noticed the size of the coffin, and they both relapsed into silence again, Blake concentrating his attention on getting back to Ballybor before dark. 
meanwhile the orderly was thinking the matter out and came to the conclusion that the coffin party was not above suspicion at this time when the railway strike was on in the west it was not unusual to see a coffin on a car but unless the coffin party belonged to the village they must be strangers to the district or they would not have run into the cul-de-sac when about three miles from ballybor they had a puncture and just as blake finished changing wheels the cars of the coffin party drew up about fifty yards behind and three men advanced towards them blake who was still quite unsuspicious thought that the men were going to ask him to let them pass and at once started up his car and got in the orderly whose suspicions were now turned to certainties drew his revolver covered the advancing men and called on them to halt whereupon the three men opened fire and the orderly replied blake yelled to him to jump in and as the man swung himself into the seat beside him he let the car go while the men on the road continued to fire luckily the light was by now nearly gone and beyond a broken windshield they got away with a good start it now developed into a race blake striving to reach the barracks for reinforcements to stop the funeral party before they could get clear of ballybor and the others to reach the first turning they came to off the main road blake switched on his lights and drove for his life downhill as fast as the car would go and round corners on two wheels with the result that in rounding one blind corner they nearly ran into a party of auxiliary cadets whose crosley had broken down the cadets naturally opened fire without asking any questions a car going that pace in the dusk on a country road in the west of ireland nowadays is asking for it and again blake and his orderly narrowly escaped being shot blake clapped on his brakes yelled out r i c the orderly held his hands high above his head and the auxiliaries gave them the benefit of the doubt luckily the leader of the cadets recognized blake the situation was quickly explained and they took cover on both sides of the road at the corner hardly were they in position when the coffin car rounded the corner and the cadets opened fire but so great was the impetus of the car and so bad the brakes that it crashed into the rear of blake's car the coffin pitched on to the road burst open and out rolled a huge wild-looking man the second car must have closed up with the leading one as the darkness came on for no sooner had the first car crashed than the second one ran into it overturned and pinned the big man to the road whereupon blake shouted hands up but the men started to run back and the cadets at once opened fire three of them fell but the fourth managed to get round the corner and blake sent two cadets after him the driver of the coffin car had fallen clear and to avoid the cadet's bullets ran round the crosley straight into the driver's arms as soon as the firing ceased blake made for the big man the cadets lifted the car and flashed a torch on his face only that morning blake had been reading a full account of o'hara and had studied an excellent photograph of him and as the electric light shone on the man's face he realized the importance of the capture the most wanted man in the west the cadets rendered first aid to the three wounded men while blake handcuffed o'hara and placed him in the back of his own car telling his orderly to watch him closely and to keep him covered with his revolver in the meantime the two cadets had returned having failed to capture the fourth man 
Blake was now most anxious to get O'Hara safely in the Ballybor barracks, but nothing would induce the Crosley to start. At last, after an hour's delay, they got the engine going, and the whole party got under way, the cadets taking the three wounded prisoners in the tender, and Blake, in his own car with his orderly, guarding O'Hara. The distance to Ballybor was short, but the delay had made Blake very uneasy, knowing that the local volunteers would surely try and rescue O'Hara if they got word of his capture. Ahead of them was a thick wood on both sides of the road, and once past this the bedding was in their favor. They started without lights, but when they reached the outskirts of the wood the darkness was so intense that the Crosley driver switched on his lights and tried to rush the place. Blake was forced to follow his example or get left hopelessly behind. Faster and faster went the tender, bumping and skidding over the wet bog road, the lamps throwing a brilliant ring of white light in front of the car, the rest inky dark. When they had passed more than halfway through the wood, and Blake was beginning to think that they were safe, the Crosley suddenly began to pull up with a screech of brakes, drowned by a volley of shots from both sides of the wood. The driver kept his head, switched off his lights, and the dreadful fight started in the black darkness of the wood. Blake turned his lights off and started to back his car, but in the darkness and excitement ran her into the ditch at the side of the road where she overturned. He shot clear of the car and on regaining the road realized that at present it was useless to try and get away with his prisoner so he shouted to his orderly to guard O'Hara until the fight was over, and went forward to help the auxiliaries. Blake found them lying down on each side of the road, firing at the flashes of the ambushers' guns, while the leader and driver were struggling to remove the barricade of timber and big stones across the road under a hail of bullets and shot. By this time a cadet had got a Lewis gun into action, and at once sprayed the edge of the wood on each side of the road with a magazine. Promptly the ambushers' fire died down, and after two more heavy bursts of fire from the Lewis gun, their fire ceased. The cadets quickly switched on the lights of the Crosley and started to clear away the barricade. Blake suddenly thought of O'Hara and ran back to his car to find that he had completely vanished, the orderly lying pinned to the ground by the overturned car, unconscious. The only chance now of recapturing O'Hara was to push on to Ballybor as fast as possible, collect all the police available, and search the country round the scene of the ambush. Without a motor it would be impossible for the fugitive to get far during the next few hours. But again the Crosley jibbed, and again a priceless hour or more was wasted before the barricade could be removed and the car induced to start. Nearly another hour was spent in reaching the barracks, getting out the men, and starting on the hunt. Until long after dawn they beat the country within a large radius of the fatal wood, using powerful acetylene lamps, but to no avail. Neither in the open country nor in any village could they find any sign or get any tidings of the missing prisoner. As soon as the light was good, Blake climbed a tree on some high ground which overlooked the country, and searched in vain with a powerful pair of Zeiss glasses. At last, thoroughly exhausted, the police returned to Ballybor, beaten. When Blake's car upset in the wood, O'Hara had the good luck to fall clear, and to roll into the ditch at the side of the road. Here he lay still for several minutes, until he saw what move the orderly would make. 
when the shooting slackened for a few seconds he could distinctly hear the groans of the orderly pinned under the car and at once realized that if he could only crawl into the wood he might be free again with great difficulty he managed to drag himself out of the ditch and over the bank only to find another and deeper ditch on the far side along this ditch he made his way until he judged that he must be close to the attackers then he wriggled into the wood and lay down to await further developments o'hara was now afraid to go nearer to the ambushers lest they should mistake him for a cadet but before he could make up his mind what to do the firing died down and he could hear the attackers retiring through the wood realizing that his only hope lay with these men he got up and rushed after them being mistaken in the darkness and confusion for one of themselves once clear of the wood o'hara found himself close to one of the attackers and while they ran explained to him who he was and learnt that the ambush had been organized in a village close to by the man who had escaped from the two cadets on reaching this village the handcuffs were soon filed off o'hara's wrists two bicycles provided and in a few minutes he was on his way to ballybor with a guide who took him along a by-road it was essential if he was to catch the steamer the next day that he should hide that night in ballybor and the chances were that the police would never think of o'hara hiding in the town practically within the shadow of the police barracks owing to the delay in starting the crosley o'hara and his guide were actually in ballybor before the police as they neared the turning to the barracks they could see the lights of the crosley behind them passing through the town they made their way to the quay where it was arranged that o'hara should spend the night with a volunteer called divine from whose house it was hoped that he would be able to pass on to the steamer next day in the company of the stoker at this time the police except in strong force did not leave the barracks at night and it was thought quite safe for o'hara to remain in divine's house after a change of clothes and some food he retired to bed hoping that his troubles were nearly over early the next morning divine woke o'hara up with the bad news that a picket of cadets guarded the approach to the steamer and that the game was up on looking out of the window o'hara could see a sentry with fixed bayonet on each side of the gangway while others were resting in the small weighing-house on the quayside o'hara who a second before had been confident of escape was in despair and collapsed on the bed after a few minutes he pulled himself together and on looking at divine was at once struck by the sinister expression on the man's face remembering that there was a price of a thousand pounds on his head and from divine's expression there was no doubt that he also was thinking of this reward without a second's hesitation o'hara covered him with a big colt automatic and told him that if a way was not found to get him on to the steamer he would shoot him divine knowing o'hara's reputation and preferring his life to a thousand pounds at once suggested a plan the town of ballybor lies about five miles up a river and all outward-bound steamers drop the pilot in the bay at the mouth of the river where he is rowed to the little fishing village of dunkara the steamer was due to sail at high tide that afternoon and divine suggested that they should bicycle to dunkara where there ought to be no difficulty in getting o'hara aboard by the pilot boat as both the police barracks and coast guard station there had been burnt some time ago 
After some breakfast they started off, bicycled boldly past the picket on the quay, and reached Dunkara without any mishap, where Devine arranged for O'Hara to stay in a fisherman's house until the pilot boat left at dusk. O'Hara had never been to sea before, and was ill before he ever reached the steamer. As soon as he got aboard, a stoker, who had been warned by Devine to expect O'Hara on the pilot's boat, took charge of him and at once put him into a bunk. That night the steamer ran into an Atlantic storm, and by the time they had made the north coast of Ireland, O'Hara was beyond caring whether he lived or died. Blake reported O'Hara's escape to the authorities in Dublin, who were most anxious to secure the man, knowing he had been the ringleader in the worst atrocities committed in the South recently. They at once came to the conclusion that O'Hara was trying to get away by boat from Ballybor to Liverpool, and then on to America, hence the picket of cadets on the quay. But to make doubly sure, they ordered an ocean-going destroyer to search the steamer from Ballybor at sea. After rounding the north of Ireland, the steamer ran into smooth water, and O'Hara came on deck for a breath of fresh air. After a time he became interested in a queer-looking long grey steamer which was approaching them from the south, and very soon the queer boat came within hailing distance, and orders were megaphoned for the steamer to heave to. O'Hara was greatly interested in watching the progress of the destroyer boat, and it was not until a sergeant of the R.I.C. in plain clothes, who had known O'Hara in the south, covered him with a webley and commanded him to put up his hands, that he realized that this interesting show was all for his benefit. End of chapter 2